All right, so we are in chapter 8 of Esther. We started it last week. Uh, so if you remember, remember where we are at the story, um, we've, had, we've had the banquets. Esther's told Xerxes what the problem is. Yeah, who was the problem? Well, what was the problem? Haman, Mordecai. What was the problem? What did she want to tell Xerxes about? Yeah, that there was this Welsh. She didn't know that Haman was planning to kill Mordecai that morning, right? She only knew that there's this law that Haman had passed that in now eight months' time, eight to nine months' time, all the Jews in the Persian Empire were going to be killed. And so she has to bring this to the king. What she didn't know was that Haman actually had a plan to kill Mordecai that, that, that morning. But anyway, so end of chapter 7, Esther tells Haman what's going on, uh, tells, tells Xerxes what's going on, and he's furious. And what happened? What did he do? Who? Haman went to the king. That was that was in chapter six, I think. So at the banquet, right? We've had two banquets. First banquet, Esther says, "Come back again tomorrow." Haman goes home, makes the plan to kill Mordecai. That night, king can't sleep. Finds out Mordecai had saved his life, but he never rewarded him. Haman arrives. King says, what should I do for this guy that I want to honor? And Haman says all the things that he thinks he should do for him, but it turns out he's talking about Mordecai. And so then Haman has to go and parade Mordecai around and all that kind of stuff. And then he goes home ashamed. His friends tell him, you're in trouble. If Mordecai is really Jewish, you're in trouble. And right then the servants arrive to take Haman back to the second banquet. And then at the second banquet, the queen tells Xerxes what's going on, that her people, my, I and my people have been sold to destruction and annihilation. And the king says, who would do something like that? Who would be so arrogant to try to kill the queen? And she says, that vile Haman. And the king is furious. He storms out to the garden to try to, I guess, get himself under control. Haman begs Esther for mercy. The king comes back, sees Haman on the couch with his wife and says, would he even assault my wife while I'm still here? And then, what's his name? Habona, one of the eunuchs says, oh, your honor, there's actually this impaling pole in Haman's backyard that he set up for Mordecai, the guy who saved your life. And so then the king's like, good, impale him on it. So, Haman, gone. No longer a problem. Okay. And then that brought us to chapter 8. It said, On that same day, the king, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, gave Haman's estate to Queen Esther. She revealed to the king how Mordecai was related to her, that they're cousins. The king gives his signet ring, the one that he'd taken back from Haman, 
the one that Haman had used to sign that law, he gives that to Mordecai, and Esther gives Mordecai, or puts Mordecai in charge of Haman's house and his property. And that's where we finished. So, we're now at verse 3. So, who wants to read? Or who will read verses 3 and 4? You can start. Then Esther again spoke with the king, falling at his feet. She swept and begged him for mercy, that he might nullify the evil of Haman the Agagite and plot that he had intended against the Jews. When the king extended to Esther the gold scepter, she arose and stood before the king. Okay, so as we said, last chapter, chapter 7, Esther's already pleaded for her life, right? Uh, Grant me my life as my request and my people as a petition. Now, a lot has happened since she did that. Haman, the enemy, is dead. But killing Haman then, that was really just solving a problem that Mordecai didn't even know existed, right? Which is that Haman planned to execute him that day. The bigger problem, the real problem, the, the problem that Esther had risked her life to go before the king and plead, the law is still there, still unresolved. That problem hasn't been solved yet. In eight months' time, the Persians throughout the empire are allowed to kill any Jews they find, take their property, and the Jews are not allowed to defend themselves. Yeah? So that's the big problem. Now, there's an interesting parallel here because, so Esther had two problems. She had this guy called Haman who wanted to kill Mordecai, and she had this bigger problem of the law that was going to result in her death and the death of everybody she cared for in eight months' time. Yes? Two problems. Man, enemy, Haman, and the law. There's an interesting parallel there for us because we also have an enemy, a Haman, right? Who wants to destroy us and kill us. First Peter, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Ephesians 6, our struggle, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, against other people, but against rulers and powers and against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Yeah? So as far as Paul's concerned, our real problem is not other people. Like our real enemy is these spiritual powers, Satan and the rest, right? Who are seeking to destroy us. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, like he can't really, ultimately your victory is won, but that doesn't mean his, that doesn't mean he no longer has any interest in you. What do you think he's trying to do with you now? He can't bring you to hell drag you down with him because you're saved, you're forgiven. God's spirit has been put in you. So what do you think he's doing to you or wants to do to you? 
If he can't destroy your eternal future, what can he do? When we were in the book of Romans, so a lot of you guys weren't here then, we talked about the idea that there are different, like, you know what tenses are? Language? Past tense? Present tense? Future tense? That there are different tenses to the word salvation. We use this term salvation to be saved but it kind of means different things depending on, uh, depending on the way you look at it. The one part of our salvation, what we call past tense, we call justification. Does anybody know what it means to be justified? No. Justified means to be essentially declared to be innocent. And so the picture is you're standing before the judge in a court, right? And you are having your life judged or maybe something that you did judged. And the judge has to decide what? Whether you're innocent or guilty, right? To be justified is for that judge to say you're innocent. Now, the picture is that we are all, all of man is going to at some point be judged by God, yeah? And he's going to declare you either innocent or guilty according to his law. Now, according to his law, what is his verdict likely to be for all of us? Guilty, yes? We've all broken his law. So we, well, I'm actually getting ahead a bit. We've all broken his law, so we're all going to be found guilty. Yes? But are we? Are you? <laughs> right. That's the whole point, right? Jesus came to, to, to pay our debt on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. Right? So that all of our sins could be washed away, wiped away, forgiven. And his righteousness, his moral perfection is given to us. We are given the righteousness of God in place of our sinfulness. Yes? So, I stand before the judge. I stand before God and he judges my life. My sins are gone. I'm standing in wearing Literally, it's described that way, like dressed in Jesus' righteousness. What is the verdict? What is God going to find me? Innocent, right? Because I am not actually being judged on my sin. I'm being judged on Jesus' righteousness. And is Jesus righteous? Yes, he's righteous. So I'm apparently righteous. It's amazing, right? 
That's what it means to be justified. When you stand before God, He's going to declare you righteous. Now, the way that that word is used in the Bible is it's in the past tense for Christians. What does that mean? It's in the past, right? Which means it's already happened. So, standing here right at this moment, according to the Bible, I, I have been justified. What does that mean? I have been declared innocent. Today, I'm innocent. As far as God's concerned, declared innocent. Yeah, I'm justified. Past tense, it's done. Cool. So, that's the past tense of salvation. Am I innocent? Am I righteous? No, <laughs> yeah, you all shake your heads. Thanks you very much. But no, exactly, right? I'm not innocent. Definitely, I'm not righteous. So then we have what's called the present tense salvation. The term is sanctification. We are being sanctified. We are being made more like Jesus, which means we're being made more righteous, yeah? That's a continual process through your life. You've already been declared past tense, I have been saved, right? Justified. But I am also being saved. I'm being sanctified. And one day, I'm going to be saved. Future tense. And we usually talk about glorified. That's once you're dead or raptured or whatever, when you're in your eternal body and everything's past and you're then in your like saved, fully glorious state. And there's some cool passages that talk about what that'll look like, right? So that's future tense. Anyway, okay, why did I get onto this? What does Satan want to do? He can't fix the justification. That's done. It's in the past. I have been declared righteous. I have been declared innocent, yeah? I am going to be saved in that sense. It's done. What can he do, though? Sanctification, right? There's this process now through my life of being made more like Jesus. And that's going to have consequences for what life is for a bigger bigger story but the bible talks about eternal like rewards in heaven yeah and those are based on how what we do with the salvation with the justification that jesus has given us how how sanctified we become and what we do with our life how many people we draw into god's kingdom with us those sorts of things right that's all part of the sanctification process. And that is exactly where Satan is, is, that's his attack for us, right? He can't fix the justification, that's done. But he, can, he will do everything he can to limit the extent to which you're sanctified, to limit how much God transforms you in this life, and to limit how much, how much of an influence you have on the people around you. Yeah? Okay. So, again, we have an enemy, the devil, seeking to destroy us, and he can certainly destroy your life, physical life. Can't take away your salvation, 
but he can wreck your life and he can he can make it so that you're yeah there's there's a verse that talks about basically like we've been saved our salvation our foundation of our life is Jesus and that can't be affected but then we build on top of that foundation and we can build with wood and hay or we can build with gold and silver and precious stones and the gold and silver and precious stones really are the things that that we do f- for Jesus in our life i guess right the the things that we allow God's spirit to do through us in our life and the wood hay and kindling bits of wood sticks that's just the things that we do for ourselves and that when we die and we come before Jesus, our sin has already been forgiven. So we're not going to be judged on that. But it says that our life is going to be passed through a fire. This is metaphorical. And all the wood, hay, stubble, all the things you just did for yourself, those are all going to burn up and be gone. And then the gold, silver, and precious stones, those are going to survive the fire, right? Those are the things that are actually have eternal value in your life. And it says some people are going to go through the fire and they're going to have nothing. They'll just be standing there naked, basically. They've got nothing to show for their life, right? They will still be saved, but as though through the fire, with nothing to show for it. And that's really what Satan wants for us. What we want, what God wants, is for there to be gold, silver, and precious stones, for there to be things that you've done in your life and the ways that you've used your life that have eternal significance eternal value and those are the things that are going to last into the next life so anyway so that's that's satan's goal and that victory our victory over haman satan our enemy that victory is already won hebrews 2 says therefore since the children share in flesh and blood he likewise shared in their humanity. Who do you think he is? Jesus. So we're the children and we're human, right? Flesh and blood. And so Jesus, decided, Jesus came and shared that with us. He became human too. So that through death, he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. And so he says, Jesus, in Jesus' death, Jesus destroyed the power of Satan, which held everybody in fear because they were all afraid to die. We don't have to be afraid to die because we know what's coming and it's better. Do we already look at that? the wrong verse a little bit later in ephesians 6 actually earlier it says finally be strengthened in the lord and in the strength of his power clothe yourself with the full armor of god so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil which comes with a warning the devil has schemes yeah he's trying to trying to trip you up, trying to make your life harder than it needs to be and less productive, less useful than it, than it could be. And so we need to be prepared. It tells us you need to clothe yourself with the armor of God. 
And you can go to Ephesians 6. Probably you guys out of Sunday school will know that better than me. <laughs> but all the different, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and all these things. And the, and the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery arrows of your enemies, your enemy. So anyway, the devil has schemes. We need to be prepared. But there's also a promise, which is that if you clothe yourself with the armor of God, you will be able to stand so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Oh, okay. There. This is the two verses before. James says, Submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we have power over him. We don't have to be scared of him. But you need to be wise. And know that he's got plans, you know. And then Romans 16, the obedience, your obedience to all and that your obedience is known to all and thus I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will quickly crush Satan under your feet. The word quickly is ta tacos. It's like a tachometer on a car. It means either really fast or really soon. And probably both is kind of in view here, although soon for God is different to soon for us. But we have this promise that God is going to crush Satan under our feet. Yeah. So that, that victory, that battle is won. And that's why Paul in Romans 8 has this like just glorious passage that we spent quite a bit of time looking at when we were there. When Paul says, what shall we say about these things then? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's his, his description of, well, he's quoting from the Old Testament, but he's saying this is what it's like to be a Christian. And at that time, it was a lot more like what it was like to be a Christian, which is you felt like you were basically lined up to be slaughtered. And he's like, does that mean we're losing? And Paul says, no. In all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Pretty cool. So, we have victory over our enemy, just like Esther now had victory over Haman, her enemy. But, we have another problem, which I've kind of talked about a little bit already. We have the problem of the law. Because today, it's not really Satan that separates me from God. Any of us from God. He might have got that ball rolling, but today the problem is my sin. Not Satan. Isaiah says, your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And the reality is that I don't need Satan to make me sin. 
quite capable of doing that all on my own. Thank you very much. <laughs> And that's a problem. So it says in Romans 14, unless we've kind of talked about it a bit already, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. Therefore, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so, as we said, we're all going to stand before the court of God and have our lives judged. And if we're judged fairly, We're going to be found innocent if we're judged fairly based on the way that we lived our lives. Yeah, I know how I'll be judged. In James it says, the one who obeys the whole law but fails on one point has become guilty of of it all, right? And I've, I've certainly failed to obey at least one point in the law, and probably a lot more, more than that. Yeah. I think the older you get and the more mistakes you make, the more obvious that becomes to you. And so what are the consequences? You're judged guilty by God of breaking the law. Romans 6, the wages of sin, the payment that you get for your sin is death. And so the same as Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jewish people in the, in the kingdom of Persia, the consequences is death of this law. And where Esther... And the Jewish people, like, it's really, we've talked about this before. There's a lot of pictures in the Bible, in stories of the Bible, that are like prophetic pictures of something of larger significance. So Esther and the Jewish people, they have this law that's going to result in their death. But that's just a model. That's like the picture. Their death that it's going to result in is a physical death. But the reality that that represents is us being judged by God's law and resulting in a far worse death that's eternally separated from our Creator and from the very life, source of life itself. And so, like Esther, we, it's not just Haman, it's not just our enemy that, that's the problem. There's a far bigger problem, which is the law. But thankfully, while the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. It's life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just like God solved the problem of Haman, God has solved the problem of the law for us and as we'll see for Esther as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Who's he and him? Jesus. Jesus, yeah. He's the one who had no sin, but he was made sin for us so that in Jesus, we would become righteousness, which I'm not righteous. But apparently in this whole transaction, 
I become God's righteousness, which is pretty incredible. Okay, so Jesus took our place, uh, kind of like Haman and Mordecai, but in reverse. You had like righteous man, good man, Mordecai, sentenced to death, but evil man Haman takes his place. This is kind of like that, but backwards. <laughs> You've got like us, the sinful, and the righteous one takes our place. So yeah, God switched places with us. Rather than us dying, Jesus died. And rather than us being sinful, found sinful, we're made God's righteousness. And so then you have a whole bunch of verses that talk about this. It's really cool. We've Romans 8 again. Uh, God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning flesh, sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We talked about that a bit when we were there, but uh, yeah. Jesus in coming in human form and dying in our place, condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law, which I definitely do not fulfill, is fulfilled in us. Because I'm no longer walking according to the flesh. What God's interested in my life is not what I'm doing in the flesh, or at least in terms of my sin. It's the fact that I've got His Spirit in me and I'm walking according to His Spirit. In Colossians, it says, even though you were dead in your sins, your transgressions, your breaking of the law, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive within him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities, Satan. He has made a public disgrace of them triumphing over them by the cross. Um, yeah. So we'll skip the next couple. Uh, that's where we should be. Yeah. So Jesus took our place, took our debt, paid our debt, made the law of commandments powerless against us. He destroyed the, like, the certificate of indebtedness, this like document that said you're guilty and you owe God, destroyed. Uh, and in their place, he offers us his righteousness, which he gives us freely if we place our trust and faith in him. And so that's how God solved our problem of the law. The question then is, how is he going to solve Esther's problem of the law? Verse 5 and 6, who can read for us? She said... If the king is so inclined, and if I have to meet with his approval, and if the matter is agreeable to the king, and if I'm attractive to him, let an etiquette be written rescinding those recorded intentions of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote in order to destroy the Jews who are throughout the king's provinces. For how can I watch the calamity that will befall my people? And how can I watch the destruction of my relatives? Right, so Esther basically says, like, there's this problem, there's the law. And what, did he ask, what do you want me to do about it? No, she just came and, oh, this is uh, whip for mercy, beg for mercy. 
that he might nullify the evil of Haman and the plot that he had. And so her solution to this problem is quite simple. She's like, just like undo the law, you know, cancel it. It wasn't your idea anyway. It was Haman's idea. So like, just cancel it. Would you kind of be like, you kind of get this sometimes, like, why did Jesus need to die? Why didn't God just kind of like ignore the law? Forget about all the sin and stuff, right? And just pretend like it didn't happen. But the fact is, if you, well, I don't know if we'll talk about it today, but it has to do with the whole concept of justice and the need for justice, which we'll talk about a bit later. But anyway, so she says, don't worry about the law, just ignore it, cancel it, write an edict, rescinding it, just undoing it. Uh, Yeah. And then, once again, Haman is described as the Agagite. This is the fourth time that that's happened. It's going to happen one more time. Why do you think God's, why do you think, yeah, well, why is God? Why is it being repeated again and again and again? Haman is the Agagite. Haman's the Agagite. Haman's the Agagite. Do you remember what the significance of Haman being an Agagite was? Means he's a descendant of Agag. Who is Agag? Remember? (laughs) Agag took us all the way back to King Saul. The battle that he had with the Amorites. Pretty sure that's right. And the king of the Amorites was this guy called Agag. And Saul told, uh, God told Saul he needs to destroy the Amorites and he needs to destroy the king. But Saul didn't kill the king. He kept him alive. Showed him mercy. But kind of an arrogant mercy, as though he knows better than God. And Haman ends up being a descendant of, of Agag. Haman is the result of Saul not doing what God told him to do. Hundreds of years later, You have Haman, who tries to wipe out the entire Jewish race. What was cool about that is, who is the counter to Haman in this story? God's solution to this problem of Haman, which was the result of Saul's arrogance. Esther and Mordecai. Who was Mordecai a descendant of? What tribe is he from? Be chapter 2, probably. He was a Benjamite, a descendant of Kish, and somebody called Shimei. Shimei. Who else was a descendant of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin? Any idea? Saul. Saul, who spared Agag, was a descendant of Kish. 
well, Kish was his dad. And one of his descendants was a guy called Shimei. Well, his relatives. And Shimei, when David, when King David took over from Saul, Shimei came out there throwing stones at him. To go away, you man of blood. You've, res- you've caused the death of my whole family. May God curse you. And David's followers, his army, say, let us go and kill him, this dead dog who curses God's king. And David says, don't do that. Leave it to God to judge him, right? He shows mercy to Shimei. And the result of David's mercy, his humility and his mercy is Mordecai, who is God's answer to Haman, Saul's pride and arrogance. Quite cool. Okay, I think we can get through the next bit. Where are we? 20 past. It's still quite early. They've got communion. Okay, so verses 7 and 8. It's like it's you today. King Ahasuerus replied to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew. Look, I have already given Haman's estate to Esther, and he has been hanged on the gallows because he took hostile action against the Jews. Now write in the king's name whatever in your opinion is appropriate concerning the Jews, and seal it with the king's signet ring. Any decree that is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be resigned. Rescinded. Yeah. So basically, Xerxes says, it's not that simple. I can't just undo the law of Haman. He says that any decree that's been written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring can't be undone. It's permanent. Not even the king can undo that law. Why do you think they did that in the Persian Empire? What do you think the purpose would have been? creating laws that not even the king could undo. Probably like, so the people will be careful about the laws they pass, right? It's really serious. (laughs) Once it's been passed, you can't undo it. So I think they weren't supposed to be so like, like exactly like Xerxes was when Haman comes to him and says, can I write this law? He's like, yeah, 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 here's my ring. Do whatever you want. Stupid, because it's really serious business. Now, we see a very similar issue to this in the book of Daniel. Um, Daniel is this young man, this young Jewish prince who gets taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, right? And the first four chapters of the book of Daniel are set in the Babylonian empire with Nebuchadnezzar as king. In chapter five, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And now Babylon is part of the Persian Empire. And then chapter 6 is set in the Persian Empire now. And it's, it says that the, the, the leader, the king of Persia at that stage, somebody that they called Darius, he's got this huge, huge empire that he has to try to manage. And so he divides it into 120 provinces with a governor in charge of each province. And then he puts three, what are called... 
well, supervisors, various different translations of it, three people in charge of all those 120 governors. And in chapter 6, it says, and, and Daniel was one of those supervisors. He was one of the three. And in chapter 6, it says, now this Daniel, this is, remember, this is now in the Persian Empire. He's quite an old man now. Darius, uh, Daniel distinguished himself above the other supervisors and the satraps. Those are the governors in the 120 provinces. For he had an extraordinary spirit. In fact, the king intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So he's one of those three who's in charge of the 120. But he's, he has this extraordinary spirit. What do you think that is? God's spirit. Yeah, there was something special about Daniel. And the king could see it. And he was going to put Daniel in charge of everybody. Of course, the other, the other supervisors, the other satraps, the other governors, not so happy about this. They don't want this Jew in charge of them. And so it says that they, they started looking for some way to accuse Daniel of something of some kind of negligence he did some just like mess something up or of some like taking a bribe or something like that anything they could accuse daniel of now normally with a politician it's not that hard to find something wrong i've been watching the news recently you'll know that but it says that they couldn't find anything that they could accuse daniel of that he was a man of he was trustworthy and guilty of no negligence or corruption he was like had tremendous integrity but then they realized that daniel's faithfulness in his service is a consequence it's because he's faithful to god and they know that his that god comes first in david in daniel's life and so if they can find some way to bring his service to the king in conflict with his service to god they know what's going to happen and so they come up with this plan they come and see the king they come by collusion to the king and say to him, O King Darius, live forever. To all the supervisors of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, counselors, and governors, it seemed like a good idea for a royal edict to be issued and an interdict to be enforced. For the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human other than you, O king, should be thrown into the den of lions. Now let the issue let the king issue a written edict so that it cannot be altered according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. It's kind of similar, right? Now, Darius in his pride or naivety or whatever, he's like, that sounds like a good idea. Everybody pray to me for the next 30 days. And so he says, okay, fine. And they write this law, this law that according to the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. What do you think Daniel does when he finds out about this law that says you, for the next 30 days, you're only allowed to pray to King Darius? <laughs> yeah. It says when Daniel realized that a written decree had been issued, he went home and prayed three times a day, just like he always did. So these supervisors get proof that Daniel's praying and they then go to the king and they say, King Darius, didn't you pass the law that said, like, nobody's allowed to pray to anybody other than you for 30 days? And Darius is like, yeah, I did. That's right. And so then they're like, well, there's this guy, Daniel. He's one of those Jews who came from Judea. 
and he doesn't care about you and he doesn't care about your law. He's praying three times a day. And like Xerxes, you can almost hear Darius groan when he realizes what he's done. And so he spends all day trying to figure out some way to save Daniel. And in the end, these these advisors come to him, these officials come to him and say, like, there's nothing you can do, actually. They say, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no edict or decree that the king issues can be changed. And so at that point, it's super cool. The king comes to, oh, that was, yeah, there's nothing you can do about this, actually. You've got to throw him in the lion's den. And so then what Xerxes, what Darius says is really cool. He gave the order and Daniel was brought and thrown into a den of lions. But the king consoled Daniel saying, your God, whom you continually serve, will rescue you. Which is pretty cool coming from a king of Persia, right? But obviously, Daniel's testimony was pretty strong. The king knew Daniel. He knew his faithfulness to his God, and he believed that Daniel's God would be faithful. And so he says to Daniel, I believe your God's going to save you. All the same, can't sleep all night, stressed to the max. First thing in the morning, as soon as there's like the first little speck of light in the sky, Darius runs to the, to the den and he yells out to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you continually serve able to rescue you from the lions? And there's nothing. No. Daniel spoke to the king and he said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and closed the mouths of the lions so they have not harmed me because I was found to be innocent before him, nor have I done any harm to you, O king. It's pretty cool. Lions not quite so passive with the guys who set Daniel up because they got chucked in after Daniel got pulled out and apparently they didn't even reach the ground before the lions had ripped them apart. Anyway, the point is, in the Persian Empire, once a law had been passed, you can't just undo it. Not even the king can undo it. And so Xerxes basically says to Esther here, I've done everything I can. I've, I can't undo that law though. But you have my ring. You can pass whatever law you think will help your people. To be continued. In a couple of weeks' time. And we'll see, see. Yeah, we have to finish up. <laughs> no, you'll be pretty busy at Cultivate. It's pretty full on, but we'll do it when we get back. See, see how God solves this problem. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your for your word as always, Lord, and the privilege it is to spend time reading it and studying it, Lord, and the way that you speak to us through it. I thank you for your faithfulness to. To men like Daniel um, and your Jewish people, and the encouragement and yeah, the encouragement that that can be to us, Lord, and knowing that you're faithful to us too. I thank you that in our lives you have you've certainly the enemy has been defeated, Lord, and we no longer have to fear Satan, we no longer have to fear death. Um, but I thank you that you've also solved the problem of the law for us, Lord, that you've. You've made a way to be to justify us, to declare us innocent, to save us without compromising your, your goodness and your justice. 
Please be with us this week, Lord, the first week of holidays. For these guys, I ask that you would bless them in it. They have a great time, lots of rest and lots of fun. Uh, and yeah, you bring us all back safely in a couple of weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.